You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and we're coming to you from the clubhouse, Paul Antonell's great studio here in beautiful downtown Rhinebeck, and we're so excited to have this guest with us. She's a wonderful songwriter and singer and a really nice person, too, and she has a new album out called Break, and we're going to be talking all about it as well as many other things. First, we've got to introduce her. Welcome, Pamela Sue Mann. Pamela, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Thank you, Rick. It's so great to have you here. Uh, all the phone calls that we've had and talks, it's so funny. We said, like, hey, this could, this could be the podcast right here. But it wasn't this is, and we, we finally made it to this moment. So I'm very pleased. Thank you for being here. Sure, I'm really excited to be here. Now, you're a Hudson Valley resident. Yes. Whereabouts do you live in the Hudson Valley? In High Falls. In High Falls. Yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. area. Yeah, we um, bought an old train station is quite that right? a few years ago. Yeah. You bought an old train yeah. station. And uh, I mean, it wasn't a train station when we bought it. Oh, okay. It had already been, you know, transferred over to right. a house. Because that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it was defunct. It was an ill-fated spur that never really worked out, you know, around the time where there was some, you know, train fever. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think it reverted back to a house in the 50s, and then a few families owned it. And um, my husband saw it online. And we took his motorcycle up, and, and he said, let's get this. So we did. Your husband, Jerry Leonard, great guitar player, known far and wide for his work, and we're really proud to say that he'll be on the show pretty soon. Yay. That's going to be <laughs> great. You know, Pamela, although you live in the Hudson Valley right now, you're not from the Hudson Valley. You're from Massachusetts. Yes. Whereabouts in Massachusetts? Oh, goodness. I'm from a tiny town called Milford. I, I know Milford. You do well. Massachusetts <laughs> happens to be my favorite state. Aw, yeah. you're not just saying that because uh, read my hat. It says Cape Cod right on my hat. Excellent. Yeah. yeah There's something special about Massachusetts. There is something very special. I like it more than New York. New York's only my seventh favorite state, by the way. That's, you know, but I do love New York regardless. Um, but Massachusetts always intrigued me. What was it like growing up there as a young musician? I think it was pretty great, actually. Now I'm thinking back on. On my high school, I mean, we always, my brothers and sisters and I, there are five of us, and we all studied instruments. We were lucky enough to to have lessons. And uh, in high school, our teachers for band and orchestra were graduates of uh, New England Conservatory and Berklee School of Music. And so we had really great teachers who knew their stuff in public school in our small town. Although you mentioned Berkeley, you yeah. ended up going there. I did. What did, did you study? I studied professional music, which was basically like the liberal arts, because they didn't really have a major for me back then, hmm. all those years ago. Um, because jingle writing wasn't what I was studying. I was really a, a poet who wanted to write songs, who played piano and sang, but I wasn't a virtuosic singer mm -hmm. nor a musician. I just was a, really a creative person. So the guidance counselor I spoke to said, um, you know, really, do a lot of that study outside of school, and then just study professional music. So I got to study music production and engineering um, in the studio. I got to study music law, um, which 
didn't really stick in my head. <laughs> and I got to take bebop piano and wow. I got to take vocal lessons. It was really kind of fun because I got to sort of do bits and pieces of everything. That sounds great. Uh, and it's helped you, I'm sure, a lot with your career as you have produced and engineered and done all kinds of things in the studio. Well, I think being exposed to a lot of different things. And I used to muse about that because as a singer-songwriter, I have always felt you have to, you're working on so many things simultaneously. You know, you're working on your, your singing or your your understanding of literature and, and ability to to write verse. Mm -hmm. And then you're also working on the ability to play your instrument and your ears. And there's never really nothing to do. You know, in the music business, they always want to pigeonhole you. And that might be unfair of me to say. They kind of need to put you in a category to sell you, I uh. guess, to some degree. What category are you in? Are you, do you consider yourself alternative, your, your style of music, or do you not really like labels so much? It's interesting because someone from MTV did an interview years ago of me, and she sort of termed the music that I do ethereal art pop, which I loved. You know, I thought, that's great. That, that's kind of what I do. But <laughs> this last record, uh, I, was, I was kind of musing with a friend saying it's, it's more like creep pop. <laughs> creep pop? But no, I think well, I think it's really more sort of indie ethereal, but then it's got a pop sensibility and and the choruses, the choruses are pretty singable, I think. I think so too. It's got a lot of different things and we'll get to all of it because I have many thoughts about your music, uh, having listened to it quite a bit for the last couple of weeks. Oh, thank you. Really good. I enjoy it, uh, particularly your lyrics. Let's talk about your lyrics for a minute. You mentioned poetry earlier. A lot of your lyrics are like poetry. Where does that come from? You, you must have a love of poetry. Well, I never studied formally, you know, and, and sometimes I, I think, oh, I, maybe I should have gone to Brown <laughs> and been an English major or really delved into literature deeply. It's, it's all just self-study. But I think at certain points in your life, you, you know, the little bell goes off and you realize, oh, that's kindred to me. I love that. You're drawn to it for some reason and uh, it seems to resonate with you and and you follow that and so I think for me maybe growing up in New England was part of that too because hmm. we would get a lot of programming on television a lot of English programs and just you know the, the way the characters spoke and then certain I had a really great English literature teacher in high school who taught all about these great authors and we did Dickens and you know covered many many great great authors and so I could see very visually the words and the pictures that these authors were painting of in the mind and I was always captivated to that drawn to that and then also since come to realize that the sensualist poets like William Blake mm. but I didn't know it was just through friends saying hey I think you might like this and you might like this and giving me poetry books and resonating what about the French uh, romantics Baudelaire. Baudelaire. I love Baudelaire. I to knew each that. his I, monster. <laughs> ah, yeah. I, I could yeah. tell. <laughs> you know, I want to speak about a specific song, First Love Song. Yeah. First yeah. Love. It's on your it's your 2005 album, Luff. Well done. Luff. <laughs> I've been practicing that for like a week. I, my French is terrible. Uh, luff. Luff. I, okay. Does that happen a lot? <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> you know I, that's the thing. People should not be intimidated by that. It's, you know, we try. That's all we can do. Okay. I, I think the French are a lot more understanding and polite than we might think. <laughs> I heard they don't like us. But well. I, I, I know. But luff, does that mean love in French? In well, French? I love the word no pun intended, because mm. it is the egg or of nothing. It's a term in tennis, a luff um, in French. My, my brother-in-law is a, 
is Irish and he's married to a French woman and he is a translator. Mm. So he was telling me about this word years ago when we were in, in France visiting and I just fell in love with it because it could mean nothing. It could mean egg or creation or everything or in my mind, love, like it sounds like love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you say egg? Egg. Can mean, isn't egg oof? Yes, the egg. <laughs> The, oh, the egg, loof, loof. Okay. So it's apostrophe, L apostrophe, O E U F. That's crazy egg. French. <laughs> uh, back to your song, though. It's mm -hmm. the very first song I heard of yours, and I was struck oh. right away by it, particularly by the lyrics. There was this one line that kept going around in my mind, and I tried to analyze it. And at first I thought, wow, that's really deep. But then as I started to think about it, I thought, you know, it's very simple. It just sounds deep, but the meaning, I think, <laughs> is very basic. Mm -hmm. you, you can correct me if I'm wrong on it. Um, it's a tricky thing about talking about lyrics. Sometimes you write things and people read their own meaning into it, and that's fine. That's beautiful when people do it, that. It is. Yeah. If you have a kind of generic, not generic, but a general kind of elastic lyrics, they can go a long way and please many different people for many different reasons and all of their interpretations. I find when you write too specifically, Sometimes you can't do that. You don't have that elasticity to your music. Yeah. Um, this particular line, it was, with a blowtorch in my hand, <laughs> I cast my spell. The icy pool, I swear I hear the bells, something like that. Blowtorch in my hand, I cast a magic spell, and from the icy pool, I swear I hear the bells. I can't believe I remember that. Yeah, I think, honestly, again, it's because there's such a visual sense. When I write, I feel like I'm seeing it in my mind's eye, and there's a scene going on. I'm enacting the scene, and it's got to be strong enough to feel it or see it. It's got to be a complete thing. It's, it's, it's sure. like I'm grabbing something that already exists, and I'm shaping it a little bit. In that case, it was, <laughs> it was really sort of... Um, you know, it was my love song to Jerry, and I was really oh. kind of, um, you know, trying to uh, soften and melt his heart and make him love me. <laughs> wow. Well, th that's kind of how I took it, because I thought, wow, a blowtorch in her hand, that's intense. And then I thought, wait a second, no, it's a great line, because you're carrying a torch for somebody, a blowtorch just mm -hmm. emphasizes the passion that you feel for them, and then maybe the, uh, I swear I hear the bells kind of thing, maybe church bells. Maybe this is about falling in love. Maybe it's about getting married. Who knows? Yeah, sometimes it takes a blowtorch to melt an icy pool. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I, I didn't realize. I was like, what's the icy pool part about? But I'm like, yeah, that's one of the coolest lines. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, in fact, I'd love our listeners to hear what you sound like, the ones that haven't already heard you. Can we play this song? I would love to. I love to. <laughs> oh, very clever. This is Pamela Sue Mann. Take a listen. I don't want to kill another day, kicking up the dirt, feeling full of cracks, following the girls. When you meet me on the ground, underneath the moon, the blue light on your face, we are perfect.
Very nice. There's a lot of words that I would use to describe your music. Some of them you, you may understand right off the bat, others maybe not. To me, it's got a nostalgic edge. It's got an ephemeral nature. I, I think one of your teachers you mentioned used that word, right? Mm -hmm. Ephemeral. Um, that was one that sprang to mind. Sometimes very intense, sometimes very raw, sometimes very delicate, sometimes both things that are kind of opposites right in the same song, which is intriguing, and also intimate. It's very intimate as well. And I think of certain songs like Ivy, for example, or Amen, are particularly that way. I mean, there's a romantic edge to it, but an intensity about it as well. Where does that come from? I, I think probably like many poets, <laughs> I, I feel things acutely. And a way for me probably to process what I feel is to understand it again, uh, viscerally or, or visually or, you know, through the senses somehow, kinesthetically. And, mm. and so I'll see, for example, if I'm feeling a little bit closed in by someone paying too much attention um, or following me around or something, uh, not that that happens, <laughs> but um, <laughs> in, the, in this case, it was sort of happening. And I think in order to process it and understand and be able to speak about it, I think sometimes I have a harder time just saying things plainly to people and just expressing something straight ahead. Yeah, it I and that's part of that is a shyness, I think. So it comes through in, in a metaphor. I was just imagining, imagining a character being basically wrapped in ivy as ivy does with house houses and, and structures. It just tends to kind of grow and take over and choke. <laughs> When you're writing some of your more intense tunes, is it helpful to be going through something for some form of inspiration to write songs this personal? Oh, it's always. You know, I I had the pleasure, my daughter and I were in California, and we, we were just invited at the last minute from some friends to, it was around the time of the, um, the Oscars, um, Bill Withers was speaking. He was speaking about songwriting. And he was so brilliant because he... <laughs> He was cantankerous. He didn't care anymore. And he said, you know, look, if I'm inspired, if I'm in love, you know, I go and I write something. And if I'm not inspired, I don't sit down and write anything. And that is true with me, definitely. I, I can't say, oh, let me sit down and see what comes out. If I hear the call, if I'm feeling something, and often I am, I feel the need to sit and go to the piano and write something. Or now, these days as of the past few years, I'll just write it, you know, I'll write it into my phone or I'll write it in a book, a journal. So it comes when the words come, when a thought comes, it comes like that. It's, it's, it happens at the t same time, the inspiration and then creating it, writing it down. Yeah, I find songs sometimes when you write them, you have to wait for them to come to you. As my friend Dan often said, they got to marinate in your brain a bit. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a pregnancy, you know, where you, you, you have a, a gestation period and, and then eventually a delivery of the song. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be pregnant, but uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's just an analogy, people. Don't write in. Don't write in. Rusty, we never have anyone write in, do we? No. Okay. Yeah. Well, that may change. <laughs> you, you know, I think pertaining to the show, I delete anyway. Okay, <laughs> that's helpful. That's thank you. <laughs> that's our producer, ladies and gentlemen. You remind me of a lot of people, and I don't mean that you 
or stealing from anybody, but we're all kind of an amalgam of our influences Absolutely. to some degree. Yeah. And I don't know if any of these influences are on the money. You let me know. I wrote down a bunch of them that while I was listening to your music, I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. that, that's really interesting. And different voicings and things like that. I'm talking about people like Kate Bush, Evanescence, Ricky Lee Jones, Sarah McLaughlin, Bjork, Amy Mann. Hey, Amy Mann, no relation. <laughs> no right? relation, no. I have met her, but you have? Not, not related to her. I always thought it was yeah. interesting that Amy Mann and Michael Penn, who are married, two great songwriters, both of their last names are one syllable that ends with two N's. Oh, goodness, I never thought about well, that. Well, I've got a lot of time on my hands, apparently. <laughs> but what do you think of those influences? Are those some people that have inspired you? I am aware of all of them, and they're all great. Evanescence, um, I think I'm a bit older than her, so I never really... Um, I, I loved the, the sort of goth romantic kind of aspect of, yeah. of the sound, but I don't know them well, uh, you know, the music. I think all of this music and the, the people you spoke of were present in my life and went in. Sometimes you can't cognitively say, I mean, you, maybe it's cognitive, you think, oh, well, yes, no, yes, no. I think sometimes things work their way into our subconscious. Oh, absolutely. So it's we might say, so. oh yeah, I used to try to do this and try and do that. But I could say I love all of those artists that you mentioned for certain. Absolutely. Songwriters are, are kind of like vacuum cleaners. They just kind of suck up all these things around them and they're not always aware of it. No, it's true. And, and things come out through our filter. You know, it was that same guidance counselor at Berkeley that was saying to me, you know, look, don't study jingle writing. Don't, you know, don't go here, don't go there. You have to keep going in your own direction because you have something unique. And in order to hold on to that, you just let everything come through your filter and don't try and sound like this person or that person. You know, read, read poetry and listen to the greats like um, Joni Mitchell, listen to Ricky Lee Jones, listen to Leonard Cohen, listen to Paul Simon, listen to the poets who are musicians, the bards, the people that are really drawing their inspiration from word and verse. And so I, I think at that time when you say Ricky Lee Jones, great lyricist, um, those artists were the ones that were available. And of course, Kate Bush, well, she's, she's a devotee of, of Blake, you know? Yeah. So, um, and she's just brilliant off the charts. Very underrated. Oh God. I mean, yeah. It, it, well, you know, she didn't, I think she did one tour and then she said she was never going to tour again. Mm-hmm. And I think in America, maybe she's not as well known as she would be in the rest of the world and definitely in England. And she's very beloved. She wrote, Jerry was just telling me the other day, man with the child in his eyes, she was 13. Wow. I mean, that is just beyond brilliant. Very talented. Very talented. You know, I don't know how old you are, Pamela, and I'm not going to ask, but you strike... 2,200. <laughs> I just see you as somebody who maybe started to come up through learning about music for the first time and, and developing these tastes and your talent as well, maybe in the 80s. And in the 80s, there were so many great female singers that I think still resonate, in, in, particularly in female singers today, people mm-hmm. like... Cindy Lauper and Patti Smythe and Pat Benatar and there's so many of them. Sheena Easton. Um, oh God, yeah. W- yeah. Were you influenced by some of those '80s women? So I, I am outing myself. I've never done this before, but I'm doing this for the first time. <laughs> wow. Here. Okay. I'm honored. Uh, only, only to a few select friends, but um, I loved Olivia Newton-John. Oh, of course. <laughs> I was basically obsessed with her. I just thought she was so beautiful. And had a sweetness in her voice 
just an absolute sweetness in her voice that seemed like she was the nicest person. And something authentic and, and earnest in her voice oh, yeah. that I fell in love with. So she was really the first singer that I actually really fell in love with. And as far as other singers, I mean, I wanted to sound like Aretha Franklin. I wanted to sing like these singers. I don't have the pipes. I don't have the mechanism. Like, there's nothing in me. I'm about as far as you can get from Aretha Franklin. However, you know, we were talking about how we, how we filter things. I think that whatever we have as an instrument and the things that we love, they come through our filter and they come out. So I might sing something that's almost borderline funky, but hmm. it doesn't come across as funky. It's just how I'm hearing it and how I'm feeling it, and it just comes out through my voice and my delivery. Yeah, and, and it's funny how things come out. I mean, Elvis mm-hmm. Costello has a very enigmatic voice when he sings, and he said all he's trying to do is sound like Rick Danko. <laughs> and when he sings like Rick Danko, it comes out like Elvis Costello, which sounds uh-huh. nothing like Rick Danko, yeah. you know? So it, it's really weird. You never know where that comes from, what, where somebody gets their sound from, what they're trying to do. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, everybody's got a different physicality about their voice. So um, No, it's true. And I, I think that, um, I don't know if it's perfect, pers- uh, I don't know if I, it's purposeful, but I tend to go, away from something that might be like me. So in other words, at the moment, I love all of these bands like Elbow and The Villagers and a lot of British and Irish male-fronted bands. And I am nothing like that, and I sound nothing like that, but I love that sound. So it's almost like I, I might be trying to channel Tom York. I try and channel a lot of male singers. I don't know why. Uh, it huh. just so it just comes out through my filter again. Well, it makes sense because we can't be influenced by all the things that we like. There's just not enough room in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Joni Mitchell. You mentioned her earlier. She's one of my all-time favorites, but I don't sound like Joni Mitchell. <laughs> Doesn't mean she's not an influence on me to Absolutely, one degree yeah. or no. I mean, I see her as a writer first. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and what a voice. And I mean, what a voice. Yeah. And and by the way, I had a crush on Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> I do too. I mean, <laughs> right, who Greece, man? Who did after Greece? I mean, uh, she was hard not to love, and she did have that real sincerity <laughs> to her she? voice. Oh my goodness. A real yeah. warmth. Yeah. Uh, I I love Wholesome. her singing. Love yeah. her singing. Pamela, do you play any other instruments besides piano? Not well. I mean, I okay. remember um, years ago, I was in a rehearsal room in this jazz studio in the city where we used to rehearse with this band, Cosmic Hand. The, my collaborator at the time gave me his bass. He had to go to the bathroom or something. And he had this electric <laughs> upright. So he handed it to me so I could hold it because it was just too much trouble to put it away. And I started writing on it. <laughs> I wrote a tritone called Wow that has never actually made it to a record. But oh. um, So I, whatever I can, probably like a lot of writers, whatever I can get my hands on, if I can play it enough to make sound, I'll write on it. But I'm not proficient mm-hmm. at all at any of these instruments. It's really interesting that the process for most mm-hmm. people, most songwriters anyway, is largely unconscious, I think, to some yeah. degree. Um, there's so much going on on the inside that, that comes out in the song that, that you sometimes it's purposeful, sometimes you're not aware of it. And there's one thing about your style I noticed listening to a lot of your music is you'll, you'll have a theme, or I should say the head of the song, where you're, you're playing something on the keys that's very consistent, but then you start changing the bass notes underneath that consistency, and it brings the uh, emotion into the song. That To me, it's like a technique that works great. Uh, you do it in Amen and many other songs. Ah. Is this something that you you do on purpose or does it just come out like that? 
I think it's sort of my maybe one of my methods. I never really again it is as you say I think it's subconscious but I love bass. I absolutely love bass and I love what it represents and what it does. And sometimes if there's an arpeggio or something that's going on that's hypnotic, not I suppose class you know in classical music that exists. If the bass line changes but you're still keeping on that same arpeggio it does create tension and it creates change, but still allows you to stay in that hypnotic place mm. because whatever's going on is not changing. It's it's the root and the base in which you're feeling down below is changing while this stays the same in a way. It's, it's almost like rippling and then there's movement within that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed that uh, in a lot of your songs that that, uh -huh. that was kind of a theme. I have to go back and listen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's there. I listened very carefully. Speaking of listening to your music, your latest album, Break. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a great album. I just have to say Thank right you. off the bat. In fact, I got my copy right here that you brought me. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. That's an album that I want. It's a fantastic album. What amazed me about it is you produced it. Your first couple of albums, or at least the two that I know, one from 99 and one from 2005, mm -hmm. you had other, other producers that you worked with. This album was really your production, right? Yes, it was. I, it's funny, I, I pause before saying that because I think of the people that were my ears. I think of the people that I so respect musically. I wanted someone to produce it. A good producer, and I learned this through Jerry because he was the first person that ever produced me successfully, they show you who you are. They just point you to yourself if they're really good. They uncover what's already there. They're not trying to change you. They're helping you understand what you're drawn to and, and how how you sound the most authentically you, mm. I think. And then eventually you, you, you go with that and eventually you, you start doing that on your own without even realizing it. So I kept asking a close circle of friends to produce me and they all said no <laughs> because they were basically saying, you know, you have really strong instincts and you know who you are artistically. You know your voice. Stick with that. Trust that. And... Just keep returning to that and then make it sound as good as you can. And then someone will mix it and, and bring that alive. So that's what I did. Was it difficult to produce and be the artist in the way that a director who acts may be taking on a whole lot while making this project? Did, did you find that to be true or was it just natural? No, it was natural because it evolved very organically. My my friend, Michael Tudor, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but he came up with this great concept, and it was it was called Bitch Boot Camp. <laughs> he, he oh, set, we swear all the time on this show. <laughs> he set up two AKG mics on either side of my piano and this old Steinway that we have, and then I set up my Neumann. He said, as you write your songs, record them listen back, record them, listen back. As you listen back, your ability to, and I had been, I had been away from music for a while because I'd had my daughter and I officially quit <laughs> for several years. Really? Yeah. And so coming back to it, I was, I was a bit rusty. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> rusty. Um, so, so I did this and it was something that went on for about six months, a year. I mean, I was writing and recording demos, quote unquote demos, but because they were really good because the chain that we had was good and the, the mics were good the piano was good I would learn how to perform the song and record the song simultaneously as the song was being polished so um, it wasn't difficult because the the song itself was written 
it wasn't written with keyboards in a studio and drum machine. It was written on the piano as songs. I mean, at least for break, that was the process for break. And then after that, I was gifted this little Yamaha toy keyboard and drum machine from, from Byron, from Byron Isaacs. And I took that and I would create because it was all I had to work with and it was immediate and it was had speakers in it and so I would create a little drum beat I would create keyboard parts these quirky little toy keyboard part sounds so that was part of the palette and then the palette naturally grew because uh Byron plays upright bass and bowed bass and so I said I hear this on it so I would actually create a lot of the bass sounds and the parts and then he would just take them and, and play them and then we would keep mine as well and then, um, you know, Jerry would come in on guitar. And then we actually did a day in Paul's studio, which was incredible. And Yuval Lyon came in on drums. And there were a couple songs we recorded, too, from break in the studio here. And they're more band songs. They have a little bit of a different sound. And they're on the, the, the digital music as opposed to the LP. Other than, than that recipe, it was just building with the toy keyboard and the and the and the keyboard sounds against the piano the acoustic piano and the more classical upright bass and bowed bass sound and then occasional guitar but there's not much guitar on the record it's mostly keyboard synth and piano I wasn't sure because yeah. there's so many sounds yeah I normally that's sure Jerry that <laughs> but, normally that's Jerry but this record he's he's on it but he's really it's it's mostly me on the sound you know, break is a very interesting title because you could take it so many ways. You you could take it as a, a break away from an older style. Um, maybe maybe it was fortuitous of, <laughs> of something because you were about to take a big break because of the coronavirus. <laughs> w- what does break mean to you? Mm. Well, to be perfectly honest, when it was sort of writing itself, because that's usually what happens, right? I was really talking about a break with an old way of thinking and a, a smaller way of thinking and kind of embracing a larger, more expansive way of thinking that can seem less safe in life. But however, I, I was feeling like I, I was trying to embrace that. And I, I was sharing that. And that's what the song was about initially. And then um, there were some major changes in my life after so it then took on a new meaning about that. And then it's interesting to me because each time the song comes back, whether we're releasing another version of it or something, it comes to mean something else. And I think, you know, in the chorus, the chorus is just break. So basically what feels good to me about that is that anyone can take it any way they wish. You know, anyone that can relate to a break, that word, which could be something very specific or something incredibly universal, they'll find their own meaning. Because it, it was an incredibly personal song when I wrote it. It sounds like it. But it keeps it continues to evolve and take on new meaning, which to me is, that makes me so excited that a song can do that. Well, on that great album break, you have many standouts, in my humble opinion. One of them is, oh, is Fear. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you, know, you told me something during one of our few conversations on the phone, mm-hmm. and this kind of speaks to the art of songwriting being somewhat subconscious, is you know, songwriters need a place of protection somehow where no one can touch them, where they can quiet their mind and, and write songs. Like, for example, the shower. <laughs> a lot of songwriters <laughs> write in the shower. I think you may have told me this or something. Did you write that in the shower? No, I wrote it after the shower. <laughs> after the shower. Okay. 
this might be a little bit too much information. Okay. Um, and then we actually we did a video, and I wanted to sort of recreate that. So in the video, I I um I think I have a towel on, or I think it's it's my hair was wet from the the shower because it's that it's that nakedness. It's it's um. I had a keyboard that Jerry had just got me. This C not a CS80, it's a CS something, the little white keyboard. It's sort of a miniature version of something that uh, Peter Gabriel used to use. Um, a Synclav? No, no, this was a... Who makes a CS80? Now I feel really embarrassed. Cause, hey, I don't know. Um, but it's a tiny little keyboard, and I call it the Zen keyboard because you can't save a sound on it. But you can loop on it and arpeggiate and sort of record these little loops. It's really fun. So... I literally got out of the shower, I had the towel on, my hair was wet, and I sat down with the keyboard and came up with a sarpeggio, and I recorded it onto my phone as the words came out through the subconscious. So it through composed the song. This, that's why it's a little odd. The song came out as I was writing it, as I was recording it, and then what we did, which was a brilliant idea from Michael Tudor, which is just build on the piece that already exists on your iPhone. So this iPhone demo became the template for the song. We just added to it, but we changed nothing. Wow. Yeah. You know, it kind of sounds like that. Because <laughs> you mentioned that arpeggio, yeah. uh-huh. and it's kind of a re- repetitious, which becomes very intense after a while as the song goes on, and then you kind of just sing over top of it. It seemed like a great idea for the album because when you do something repetitious like that mm-hmm. and, and you hold on to it, and then you start to layer stuff on top of it. It can be really intense, and the album is intense. And, and that's well, thank you. Probably one of the more intense songs on the album. Thank you. I think I think with this fear, it's exactly that as you speak of. It's it's almost like a, a recurring, repeating thing. Although the lyrics are kind of going through, they're not repeating so much. But the song has an arc to it, so it does have an intensity and a moment. It's like sh- it shows up and it appears, and then it, it it's almost what is it Shakespearean where you have the uh, the, the arc of the story mm-hmm. and then the denouement and the, you know and then it comes through and there's all these parts and and they they appear and then they swell and then they disappear one by one and I think at the end there might just be a lone guitar or something that's that's left trailing off. Fantastic. We can't talk about it this much and not play it. So I want to play <laughs> Is Fear. Would that be okay? I'd love it. Thank you. This is Is Fear off the album Break, Pamela Sue Mann. Listen up.
Yeah, I saw the video to that song. It was, uh, it looked like, at first I thought it was just a series of stills or maybe drawings. And mm -hmm. I was like, no, that, I don't think those are drawings. It's like a lot of black and white stuff. It was very artistically done. Um, you had a, another video, I think it was for I Want Your Soul, yeah, which I believe is the single from Break, correct? It is. So going back to Is Fear, that's actually 2112 Productions. That was her vision, Sandy Emma. She's a brilliant videographer, and she entered, I mean, she got invited to festivals. There was one in New York City, um, in different parts of the world where it won some prizes. And it, that's her her creation basically we, we we did collaborate a little bit on it but it was her vision and i love what she did with the video it was just really kind of evocative and mm -hmm. and, and beautiful I, I want your soul right now has a a lyric video but i'm working with this incredible young filmmaker he's 16 years old and his name is benny Randall, and he's been homeschooled and he's had his He's he's a filmmaker. He's had his education in filmmaking. He has made some uh, some feature films, and he's going to be doing the video with me, the actual video for "I Want Your Soul," which should be out in late August, early September. You mentioned the video that you have now for mm -hmm. it is a lyric video, and they yeah. seem to be pretty popular. And this one pops big time. It jumps right out at you. You've got all these great colors, these bright you know, fluorescent colors flashing at you. And it really makes you pay attention. Oh, thank and, you. While you're looking at the lyrics. Yeah, that, that was my vision. Because when you're thinking about something being so strong and so minimal, how can you make that happen? You know, the, the, the lyrics just appear. They're very bold. They're very simple. They're uppercase. And um, what changes behind it are the colors. But that should I talk about what that symbolizes as far as I want your soul? Sure. Okay, because the song I Want Your Soul is basically a look at the twin soul theory, um, which, which is basically that it's an ancient theory, and a lot of the Greeks and a lot of different cultures have their own version of it, where, say, we are, we are a soul that has sort of split in two, and we're, we're incomplete. We come back in this life, and we're searching for this other part of our soul that when we find that other part... In a person, we join together and ascend, and then don't have to come back anymore. I think. <laughs> so that's heavy. <laughs> so, oh, wow. so it okay. speaks to the idea of reincarnation. It speaks to the oh. idea of let's say these two characters in this story keep coming back and getting it wrong, so they have to come back again. So in this particular lifetime, the I guess you'd say protagonist. Uh, recognizes the other one and says, hey, you know, here's my soul. You can hold it. I'll hold yours. I'll make it shine. And we'll do this thing and we'll get it right and we'll ascend. Um, of course, in the song and in the story, it goes wrong and they miss it. So they have to wait till next lifetime again. But the different colors behind the text represent the lifetimes, to me at least, oh, maybe cool. not to anyone else. But right. what can change to represent these things is the color. So that's why the bold colors keep, they're actually morphing into one another, which to me represents lifetimes. You've been listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. Don't forget to come back next week to listen to part two with Pamela Sue Mann.